we're just going to read from God's Word together now. Um, we're turning to Ephesians 5 uh, and starting at verse 21, uh, reading through to chapter 6 and verse 9. So let's read God's Word together. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord and not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Thank you so much, Lauren. Let's just take a moment to come before God in prayer. Let's ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that your word is always alive and active. Your word goes to work within the human heart. <clears throat> and so we pray, Father, right now, that your word would do its work within our hearts. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would take the word of God and make the word of God come alive within the hearts of the people of God. 
In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Paul, up until this point in the letter to the Ephesians, has been instructing the Ephesian Christians on how to live within the household of faith, within the church. Um, We've seen that up until this point. And then this morning, as we get to this passage, Paul is moving them to this place of thinking about the household and what it means to live out um, faith as a believer at home. Um, and we will unpack that this morning. This is a difficult passage, by the way. There's a lot of, uh, of difficult parts to this and different interpretations of this. I've been working particularly hard this week on it. You'll be delighted to hear that. I've been working hard for my pay this week. Feeling a little bit tired after being flat out working um, all week on this. This morning, let me just up front um, say this. We're going to journey through this in four big movements of thought, and they're on the screen. So the first one is resonance and resistance, then context and clarity. We're going to think about liberation and transformation, and then finally, this radical and beautiful submission that we see here. So those big four kind of thought movements through this passage. So first of all, resonance and resistance. I think it's important that we start with this. I, I heard in preparation this week a pastor um, describe how for all of us there are parts of the Bible um, that will resonate naturally with our hearts, parts that we, that we really love and enjoy, those kind of go-to passages for us. We resonate with those passages. They resonate with our, our heart Verses, passages, even entire books of the Bible that we really, really like. Um, they resonate with us. But then there are parts of the Bible that, if we're really honest, we sometimes feel a little bit of resistance towards what we read at first read. We maybe find ourselves thinking, you know, really, Lord? Is that, is that really what you want me to do? Or is this really what you want me to know? Surely not, Lord. You wouldn't do that, God, would you? You don't really still intend me to believe this or live that way. And yet we know that, that the whole counsel of Scripture is really, really important. Both those parts that really resonate with us and those parts that we sometimes find a little bit of initial resistance towards, they are both equally important for us to grapple with. We don't want to ever skip out bits of the Bible just because we don't particularly like that verse or that book or that passage. And I think that actually those resistance passages, those moments where we would probably perhaps skip through it, um, not address it, or as a preacher, leave it out entirely and move on to something that sounds a lot nicer. Um, It's easier to do that. And yet those passages actually require disciplined attention from us. And I've been in that space this week. I've been in that place of really disciplined attention to God's word and what God wants to speak to us about from this. You see, today's passage might, and as Lauren read it, there might have been parts of that 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 maybe generated a sense within your heart of kind of resistance. Really, God? A first read with no context or attention paid at all to the, the context or the conditions into which Paul writes We might have only heard, you know, submission, slavery, patriarchy, a kind of society and culture in which men hold all the power and women are largely excluded. Maybe there was a little bit of that. You thought, yeah, that's what I heard there, you know. 
So let's just check in for a moment before we get into this. Let's check our hearts. Do we trust the perfection and the goodness of God and his word? You can't say yes to that. We do. Do we trust in the fulfillment of his word in the person and work of Jesus, the son of God? We do. And do we believe that God's word is still entirely relevant today? Its intention is for us to flourish and not flounder in our faith. We believe that. And so we're going to pay careful attention this morning um, to both context and content. There are parts that resonate. There are parts that we might find resistance to. This passage contains three pairs of, of household relationships. I don't know if you picked that up from Paul's day. Wives and husbands, children and fathers or parents, and then slaves and masters. Let me say right at the beginning that I believe that the key to the whole teaching that follows is found in verse 21, where we read, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We'll come back to that in a few moments. But let's get some context and clarity from within Paul's day, from within the Ephesian context. Um, context and clarity. What about wives and husbands? Paul was writing, let's be reminded, he was writing into an ancient Greco-Roman world that was pretty brutal in its view of power within household relationships. All the power was viewed to be held in the person of higher social position. And it didn't really matter how that person treated the person who was in a lower social position. And we know that women and therefore wives were very much in that lower social position in Paul's world, in the world of the New Testament. Engagement in prostitution and promiscuity was pretty normal for men within that Greco-Roman culture. It was widely accepted that, that husbands um, could have engaged quite freely in sexual activity with mistresses and, and prostitutes, should that be where their heart went. Pretty brutal kind of culture. There was even an ancient saying that went like this, wives are for legal heirs, prostitutes are for pleasure. Isn't that awful? Wives are for legal heirs, prostitutes are for pleasure. It's pretty shocking by anyone's standards, that kind of saying, that kind of ethic within the culture of the day. And so it was utterly radical. We can't underestimate how radical it was for Paul to teach that husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Utterly radical. Shattering to what would have been the norm within Paul's culture. Marriage for the husband in Paul's day was often more about social status and property rights than it was about sacrificial love. And so here we land in the Ephesians 5 into the context into which it was written. And this teaching from Paul, we must understand this, this teaching from Paul would have been incredibly liberating, radical, freeing, um, to uh, wives, to, to women within his day, despite how we might read it at first glance today in 21st century Western culture, it would have been incredibly liberating to those within Paul's day. Historians record that in those earliest centuries, Christianity would have been especially appealing to women. 
because it was within the church that they found greatest dignity, that they found greatest liberty and greatest empowerment in all of society. The church was the most wonderful place for a female in Paul's day to be. What about children and parents? In Paul's day, children were better um, seen and not heard. You know that little phrase? None of you would ever think that. Children in Paul's day were also viewed to be of really low social status, really low social position within culture and society. I actually read this week that the ethos of the ancient world saw nothing morally wrong with infanticide, the killing of babies. And they also saw that the abandoning of newborn babies on the dung heaps or garbage dumps of the city to be something that was actually quite okay. Particularly baby girls who were seen as being of much less value than a baby boy. And it's into this culture that Jesus entered. Jesus who in the face of being rebuked, remember that moment, rebuked for even having children come to him. Jesus says in that moment, let the little children come to me. Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. I'm pretty sure Jesus was like, do not hinder them. Don't hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Can you picture it? Again, utterly radical in the culture of his day. Paul writes that children should obey and honor their parents. What good advice that is. Children should honor and obey their parents. But he also says, he says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Do not use your higher position to domineer them. Don't irritate them in a way that you ought not. Don't frustrate them with your supposed power over them. Don't always seek parents to get your own way with them, no matter what, no matter what it might take. Again, Paul is being totally countercultural by saying and teaching these things. His words were hugely dignifying towards children. These things would just not have been said. What about slaves and, mass, uh, slaves and masters in the context of this passage? Well, like, like prostitution, much of the Greco-Roman world ran on slavery, on a slave trade. And with the expansion of the Christian church in the early centuries, we can see the clear movement away from an oppressive slave culture. And I could talk for hours about this this morning. We just don't have hours. We don't have that time. So let me just say that the early Christian church, again, provided great dignity, value, and worth to those who worked for a master. Many were treated with such counter-cultural kindness that they were persuaded to give their lives to Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And to join the movement of the church because they were involved in a Christian home. Again, Paul's words were so countercultural. And yet, when we read it at first glance, wives, submit to your husbands, children, obey your parents, slaves, obey your masters. That could 
as one author writes, appear to depict as the ideal for Christian family life, a model that is hierarchical, male-dominated in favor of slavery and oppressive, not only to slaves but to wives and children too, all of whom must be utterly subservient to the male head of the household. I don't believe any of that to be the case. Any kind of headship that Paul speaks of here is not that. It's not oppressive. Certainly not this domination that that some people view it as. You see, there's liberation and transformation here. Liberation and transformation. Let's be clear, Paul is not in any shape or form providing justification. As some people across the Christian church would say, for the suppression or the oppression of women, children, or slaves. He's not. Not for one moment. Nor is Paul advocating for some form of male domination over woman. Not at all. And he's most certainly not advocating for the place of slavery in his day. Let's be clear about that. Some people take passages like this and try to say, it's okay. It's okay for this. Paul's not doing that. Got to be really, really clear about that. What Paul is doing, Paul is, Ben, I just caught your eye there too. You, you'll concur with that. International justice mission. We want to see the ending of slavery. Amen. What Paul is doing here is speaking powerfully from the culture of his day into the culture of his day in a way that is incredibly liberating and transformational, particularly for women, children, and slaves, or bond servants. Some argue that Paul's teaching about submission within the household is absolutely non-reciprocal. In other words, that it's only the person of lower social position who ought, to, um, who ought to, within the culture, submit to the person of a higher social position. And that there's absolutely no reciprocation from the other person in any way. But I actually believe that what we see here is also a call to a form of submission for those in higher position as they live within this new humanity called the church. And the key is found in verse 21, this radical and beautiful submission where Paul writes, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. John Calvin, 16th century reformer, said this. He said, God has bound us so strongly to each other that no man ought to endeavor to avoid subjection. And where love reigns, mutual services will be rendered. Mutual services will be rendered. Submit to one another out of reverence. This is key. This, I believe, is the principle, the ethic that ought to then apply down through the rest of this passage. Everything that follows flows from Verse 21, out of reverence for Christ. This phrase appears in one form or another all the way down through this passage. Just look down through it. Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. 
Slaves, obey your earthly masters just as you would obey Christ. This is the lyrical refrain that Paul wants to be ingrained within the Ephesian minds and hearts and within our hearts and minds this morning. He constantly brings us back to Jesus. To Jesus. As we consider every household relationship that we hold, as we relate to our husbands, as we relate to our wives, as we relate to our children, as we relate within our homes, this is what Paul wants us to do. He wants us to look to Jesus. And as we look to Jesus, the unmovable one, the sole king and head of the church, as we look to Jesus, it changes everything. It changes everything. Jesus who lived in total submission and surrender to the will of his Father. Jesus whose life and ministry represent and embody the upside down countercultural nature of the kingdom of God. Jesus the humble king who never wore an earthly crown. How's that for power? The humble king who never wore an earthly crown. The king of kings who humbled himself. Jesus who turns the notion of greatness upside down. Remember that moment in the upper room? We were thinking about the prayer of Jesus in the upper room before he goes to the cross to give his life up for, for all of us. And in those moments, in that upper room, when a discussion erupts about the notion of greatness, they were all wanting to know who's going to be the greatest. Who's going to sit beside you, Jesus? Who's going to occupy that place right beside you? Who's great? And in that moment, Jesus, what does he do? He stoops down and he washes the disciples' feet. Imagine. You want to know greatness? You want to know what greatness looks like? You want to know what power looks like? He stoops down and he washes his disciples' feet. Again, a despicable thing to do in Jesus' day. Countercultural, turning the world upside down. Jesus who, Philippians 2, Jesus who made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a what? Of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus who humbly gives of himself. Jesus who gave of himself to the weaker party. By the way, that's you and that's me. None of us are strong in and of ourselves. He's the king of kings. And yet Jesus, who humbly gives of himself to you and I, laying himself down for us. What a savior. What a friend. What a God we worship. And so what are we to do? Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's a sanctified, holy submission to one another. Now, I want you to hear me really clearly this morning. Hear me very clearly. I am not abdicating any sense of leadership responsibility upon myself within my home. I want to lead my family really well. They need me to do that. I want to lead my family really well. And man, if you're a man here, if you're a husband here this morning, your family needs you. Your family needs you to step up. Your family needs you to do that. Your wife needs you to do that. It's so important for us. 
But there's also a sense within this passage of submitting ourselves to one another in the Lord within the economy of the kingdom and within our households. I was thinking about this. It would be utterly ridiculous if in my home, just to give you a laugh, if in my home I can't see how, um, as Caroline's husband, that it's only ever Caroline who should, should submit to me and my crazy ideas. I get it wrong all the time. If I was to ever think I'm the only one with great ideas in our home, that I'm the only one who ever gets it right, with no kind of reciprocation on my part, it would be utterly, utterly ridiculous. But we've got to lead well, man. We've got to step up and lead well within our homes. Never, ever abdicate that responsibility. It says here, Paul teaches that wives ought to submit to our, your husbands as you do to the Lord. Look to your husband, listen to him, follow his direction when it's worth following. Let him make good and godly decisions over you and your family. Let him, when he's seeking the Lord, as to the Lord, in reverence of the Lord, as he's seeking the face of God, let him make good and godly decisions. Listen to him when he's doing that. But husbands, love your wives. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Do you hear me? You husbands, Stuart, you love your wife as Jesus loved the church. What does that love look like? He laid down his life for the bride. Surely that's submission right there. Men, husbands, our love for our wives ought to be a love where we lay ourselves down for them. We give up other things, even other selfish pursuits or ambitions in order that we might nurture a sacrificial love for the one whom God has given us. We're to look to, listen to, and love our wives in a way that leads her into holiness, into sanctification, and into life in Jesus' name. We take our wives' lead on something when clearly she knows more than we do when we're going to react in a way that is rash and wrong, listen to her. Take her lead on it. We don't always get it right. Let's lead our wives into life in Jesus' name. What about children and young people? I've been dying to say this bit all morning. Paul says, obey your parents in the Lord. My kids aren't here. Work. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. Have you ever heard this verse? So that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. You young people, I have no idea how this works, but you're going to get a longer life if you obey your parents. I think Paul is saying there's definitely something healthy there's something healthy, there's something life-giving for a young person or a, or a, or a child when they, when they listen to 
and obey their parents. You young people in here, you listen well to that. But fathers, parents, mothers, do not exasperate your children. Okay? Parents, I know, right? I know. I I completely empathize here. I know that you've never felt um, more out of control than you do in that coffee shop or restaurant with your children when it all kicks off, when food gets thrown around, siblings begin to beat each other up, and it seems like every beady eye in that place is on you and on your kids. I have been there numerous times, multiple times, far too many times, um, than I wish to remember. And under your breath, you vow to never, ever, ever go out to a restaurant again, ever, with your kids. Parenting is such a profound loss of control. That's what one pastor said, and I believe it. (laughs) Parenting regularly involves a profound loss at times of dignity, control, and sanity. And so, parents, we must submit as to the Lord our constant desire for control. Control over our kids, come what may, whether they'll listen to us or not, that we would submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We're going to worship God in a moment. Um, Let me actually, let me invite the worship team forward. We're going to worship God in response. Um, But as I was thinking about this this morning, um, I think prayer ministry today could well be for anyone here who's experiencing difficult household relationships. We don't know what that might look like for you, but maybe this morning God is wanting to meet you in that place of need where you have a particularly strained household relationship. And in the context of confidentiality with someone, two people who will pray over you and with you, maybe you could avail of that this morning before you go home. As human beings, just as we prepare to worship God, we're created for selfless, self-giving love in the context of community, and it all begins at home. It's easy, isn't it, when we come out to church or when we go to work to cultivate relationships, to make it look like it's all working well. But at home, at home, that's where the real challenge is. At home, we often hurt most those that we love the most. We must work at this. We're to live lives of selfless, self-giving love to one another because we love and we serve a God who is in essence selfless, self-giving love, existing in perfect community as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so as we prepare to worship him in response, listen to this on the Trinity from Tim Keller, pastor in New York City. He says this, the life of the Trinity is characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutually self-giving love. When we delight and serve someone else, we enter into a dynamic orbit around him or her, and we center on the interests and the desires of the other. That creates a dance, particularly if there are three persons, each of whom moves around the other two. So it is, the Bible tells us, each of the divine persons centers upon the others. None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. 
Each person of the Trinity, that's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in the others. This creates, he says, a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. Then he says the doctrine of the Trinity overloads our mental circuits. In other words, we can't get it. That's okay. He says, despite all of its cognitive difficulty, however, this astonishing dynamic conception of the triune God is bristling with profound, wonderful, life-shaping, world-changing implications. And so why don't you stand with me as we pray? We're gonna pray and then worship God. Let's stand together. Heavenly Father, as we bow before you, as we prepare to worship you, Lord, we recognize that the call upon us as human beings on the face of this earth, husbands, wives, sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, colleagues, employers, employees, as we relate to other people on this earth in our lives, Father, you call us to a life where we look to Jesus, where we look to the triune God, who in essence is selfless, self-giving love. And as we look to our God, that that would shape everything about who we are, that we would be those people who, who lead well, who stand up well and seek the face of God and lead others within our homes, within our workplaces towards Jesus and life in his name. But as we do that, that we would be those who humble ourselves, that we would be selfless, self-giving in our love. And we pray that the life-giving presence of Jesus, that upside-down kingdom of God that he brings into this world in which we live, that we would be those who live out the ethic of the kingdom, that we would be those who live to serve other people, as we look to Jesus, as we pray that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit, that it would be that life-giving, that life-giving presence of God that would flow from us to other people. Challenge us this morning, God, we pray, where there are fractured relationships at home, we pray that you would bring healing in Jesus' name. And now, God, as we prepare to worship you, Raise our hearts, engage our hearts, our minds, our whole beings as we worship you in response to who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.